This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like, sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Good evening, one and all, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 R's weekly analysis of the unusual green shoots growing up through the crumbling mess of uh, some of our most sacred institutions. Ah, Bushy's my name, and I hope you're all very well. How are you, dudes? I'm well, I'm well. I think I'm doing better than Kate. Kate, you're struggling. Oh, She's struggling. struggling. I'm trying to buy myself up. I'm very sleepy. See, I, I'm used to carrying all that extra weight around my guts. You're not. <laughs> yeah. Far out. 33 weeks, seven long weeks to go. Seven long weeks. Mm. Don't look at it that. Look at it more like 35 really long days. Or seven weeks of peace. Seven, oh, have you wrapped up work? Peace. Not yet. Not yet. No, another four weeks of work left. Aren't they the seven weeks where they get really big and they grow lots? And yes, yeah, so I had a scan today and he's two and a half kilos, so I reckon he's going to just pile on the weight over the next seven weeks. Crikey. Two and a half kilos. He'll just be crawling around crying. <laughs> that's not a baby, that's a smorgasbord. Uh, yes, this evening we have a guest in the studio. Um, he's going to talk to us about... I asked him before the show how long he'd been into insects and bugs and he said, too long. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll ask him why in a moment. Ari Hoffman completed his undergraduate education at the University of Queensland and Monash Universities, graduating with a Bachelor of Science honours in 1980 and then undertook PhD work at La Trobe, graduating in 1984. He's completed a postdoc at UC Davis before returning to La Trobe, where he started as a lecturer and attained a personal chair in 1998. Not like Triple R, where you've got to share chairs with everybody. What, Ari, is, it, what is a personal chair? Ari, just educate the so uneducated. I haven't finished the introduction yet. Oh, Hang on. Sorry. Ari also received a Federation <laughs> Fellowship in 2005 to conduct research at the University of Melbourne. But before we talk about bugs, we're going to talk about personal chairs, Ari. <laughs> well, it's not one that you carry around. It's not. <laughs> no, it just means that, um, you know, if you've got a certain, um, I guess, how shall I put it, a certain level of achievements, um, then they can give you a professorship um, without actually being ahead of the department in those days. So that's what a personal chair is. Do so you get your own special chair? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I didn't actually get a chair, though, unfortunately. <laughs> if we can gift you a three triple R lovely rotating chair. We'll sneak one out the back on door. <laughs> Take one of those orange ones out of you the can, green room. You can switch the cameras off, can't you, Jed? Yeah. Well, I mean, you have, uh, you've been at your craft um, for a long, long time. I mean, you're, you study ent- entomology is, is your area of expertise. Um, I would imagine that of all the things that you can study on the earth visible to the naked eye, this is one of the broadest and most complicated living species we have. Absolutely. How do you get into that as a young fella? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I um, I grew up on a farm and um, vegetable farm, and um, of course, there's lots of bugs around. So my father was always 
looking for bugs and I guess most of the time to kill. But of course, he was also interested in uh, pollination yep. and insects and the main pollinators that we have. So incredibly important. So they're good and bad in that sense. Mm. And and look, they've been around a long, long time. So. Um before we get to the crux of our chat tonight in the middle of the show, let's sort of just paint a picture of the history, the long, long history of this. I mean, the, they, the appearance of insects as early terrestrial herbivores mm. sees them acting as, as selection agents on plants. And as they evolved, they evolved chemical defences, as the plants evolved these chemical defences against bugs, this in turn sees insects evolve mechanisms to deal with plant toxins and so forth. And so there's this incredible interplay that goes on over many millions of years and it, and it continues today. Can you sort of paint a picture of how these yeah, things sure. go on? Yeah. So, I mean, insects are about, um, well, let me think, about 400 million years old, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. well before the dinosaurs that arrived about 200 million years ago. So they've been on the planet for a very, very long time. And they were also one of the first flying things, so they got around yeah. by flight, you know, the first animal that really sort of developed flight. So in that sense, um, they've been able to sort of, I guess, occupy a lot of different environments for a long time and get around for a long time. And, you know, in that sense, they are the main terrestrial um, biomass that we have of animals, even today. Mm. I mean, ants, I think, are the most abundant um, organism in the world. That's what people claim. Yeah. Is yeah. it true that, uh, like, per weight, like, ants are the, the largest grazing yeah. population on the planet? Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, in Australia, we have a fantastic biodiversity of ants. Uh, we have one of the richest biodiversities in the world. So. Of, yeah. of ants or yeah, of right. generally everything? Well, I mean, we we certainly have an excellent collection of insects here, um, but ants were quite unusual in ants. So, yeah. so when you think about biodiversity, mostly you think about it increasing towards the tropics, but ants are unusual in the sense that they increase towards arid areas. So if you go to dry yeah. areas, you get more ants than you actually do in the tropics. So, <laughs> so that's interesting. And it is part of that because there's just there's so many unique niches to be occupied that, you know, the, a species might adapt so a species from, say, point A to point B, 100 kilometres away, might, for all intents and purposes, be very similar but have adapted in that yeah. different realm? Yeah, they, they certainly adapt. But it, it's almost like, you know, you can get an environment that looks incredibly homogeneous mm. and, and you can get a lot of different ants living there, a lot of different ant species. They seem to be incredibly good at sort of using small differences in environments to yeah. sustain themselves. So. Yeah. So can you paint a picture? I mean, if you're saying 400 million years ago is the advent mm. of um, insects and, and, and did flying insects come on at the same time as other bugs? It seems? Yeah, they sort of, I mean, you know, some of the earliest fossils we have are, are actually a flying insect. So, mm. yeah. so things like dragonfly larvae are ancient, for instance, and of yeah. course they're excellent flyers. So, yeah. so you seem to theme them by flying insects mm. and then... The other one's like walking insects. <laughs> Why do they all like when you talk about them? You talk about them in these different groups. Well, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, of course, flight and insects has evolved many times, and of course, they've also lost fly many times. So, mm. if you think about your grasshoppers, you've got your flying grasshoppers that, of course, you know, go around the desert, and then, of course, they've also, you've also got your flightless grasshoppers that live in the mountaintops. Okay. Um, so sometimes they just lose those wings, and sometimes they grow them, they develop them. So. Mm. It does seem like to, to evolve into flight is uh, seems a very. I mean, that's an odd thing to select for, in as much as it very, becomes very energy intense. I mean, the further yeah. you have to fly, it means the further you have, you have to store more calories. Mm. You've got to be made of tough stuff. I guess the payoff is broader territory 
that can be covered and migratory territory and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. around the time that insects come on, what are they sharing the planet with? I mean... Well, it's well before the dinosaurs. <laughs> so, so, that, so that puts them before birds? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Very much. Uh, so, I mean, dinosaurs came along a couple hundred million years ago. Birds were after that, of course. Um, mm. So you're talking about being able to exploit a whole lot of habitats that there was not much competition for, I suspect. Yeah, right. So, yeah. That's but, incredible. you know, they've still been able to persist rather well, of course, unlike the dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, that... So they must they must be able to adapt incredibly well because I mean if we I think collective collectively most people agree that the thing that put an end to the reign of the dinosaurs was um, an asteroid um, and hitting the Earth filling the atmosphere with dust and all those sorts of things small mammals were able to go underground maintain yeah, good body yeah. temperature and so forth yeah. and so insects. Is there an idea of what sort of number of insects were lost around that time and or and how many versus the losses, how many survived and, and went on? Yeah, so some people have looked at that and um, it turns out that insects are actually quite good at um, tolerating some of these mass extinction events. Mm. So, so typically what insects can do, of course, is they can undergo diapause and, um, you know, you can get a, an, an active form that might sit in the soil for about three, four or five years. Mm. What's so, a diapore? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a bear that um, hibernates. Ah. So you go, into, you go into some sort of an active phase and you just sit there. You just sit it out. And how long can they do that for? They can do that for a long time, several years. Wow. And in Australia, we have many insects that actually do that quite successfully, as well as mites. And um, you know, particularly during our hot summers or drought conditions, they can just sit there. And of course, they come out when conditions become favourable. Mm. Very, very tough in some cases. And how large were they getting? Because I mean, we, the other thing that we always think about with the age of the dinosaurs and, and, yeah. and megafauna was just the sheer scale of animals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about insects the size of a sparrow, <laughs> a wedge-tailed eagle, what, what, a hang glider. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, insects are a bit different to other animals in the sense that they, um, they don't have an internal skeleton, they have an external skeleton. Right. So that's the chitin that they have. And that means that you're physically limited as to how big you can actually get. So insects have always been sort of on the smaller side. They can never get massive like those sorts of, um, even a small mammal. Because, you know, effectively they need to have a circulatory system, they need to have a skeletal system. Yeah. And they don't have a heart that pumps around blood from a circulatory system and they need to support this um, this body with an exoskeleton. That yeah. physically limits the size they can achieve. So yeah. that's what makes them an insect, is that... Yeah. yeah, I yeah. mean, although, although, of course, you know, crayfish have an exoskeleton, spiders have an exoskeleton, mm. so there are other things that have exoskeletons, but insects certainly are the most predominant form of that. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I mean, what defines an insect versus an arachnid, a crustacean? <laughs> well, supposedly the number of legs you've got. <laughs> is it the six-leg thing? <laughs> well, that's, that's um, what people argue, but, um, yeah. you know... There are, there, I mean, there are different evolutionary lineages of these things, so mm. it's a little bit more complicated than that. But you can certainly think of six versus eight legs as a simple way of looking at it. Yeah. Mm. What about the things that have got, like, thousands of legs? <laughs> <laughs> Millipedes. Millipedes. Yeah, right, yeah. Well, you know, that's a different group again, isn't it? Isn't it? So they're not insects. Well, look, there are things that look like millipedes at the larval stage and are true insects, but of course there's a whole lot of other things that are different to insects, but they're still invertebrates, you know, that's not a big category, isn't oh. it? So, yeah. mm. and, and we also forget, of course, the mites. I mean, mites are very, very abundant as well. Yeah, very They're very small. abundant in my house at the moment. Yeah, right, small crawly things and incredibly oh. diverse as well, a bit like insects in that sense. Well, that, yeah. that's what we're going to touch on in a little while in the show because mm. it, there's, there seems to be just this a, a, a little grab bag list of insects whose bad PR shits it up for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like mites and flies and mozzies and so forth. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in the way um, various animal species impact 
on broader ecology. It's something that sure. I find quite fascinating. I recall um, a few years ago watching an Attenborough documentary, and I can't remember the mm. particular. I think it was a cicada of some sort in the UK, and, and once a year this thing burst out in phenomenally big numbers, yeah. and and Attenborough stood in this part of the forest, and it was a a racket of yeah. of insects, and it was also a racket of birds as well. So. Um, over millions and millions of years, I imagine this has been repeated again and again, these huge breeding numbers that insects have mm. followed by a huge birth and, and you know, they come out and they, they, they eat. They can mean by tear a tree down, like rip it to mm. pieces and eat it down. Um, but then they are either digested or they drop dead and, and those nutrients begin to cycle through. So over large timescales, I mean, what, what has been the effect of insects broadly mm. on like soil and on the dispersed, like there's some areas of the world where you see trees and then they stop very suddenly for hundreds of miles and there's no no trees. And obviously yeah. we have things like volcanic activity and we have water movement and all these things that affect soil. But something that's been on the planet for 400 million years must surely have had no small impact Absolutely, yeah. on how yeah. soils have developed. Yeah, and, and certainly how plants are developed, right? Mm. I mean, that's the other big one. Um, yeah. And... Um, you know, they certainly are fertiliser for soils in that sense. Yeah. You know, you go through these cycles. And, of course, they're incredibly important as a bird food source. Mm. Um, you know, many birds rely, absolutely rely on insects for food. And, of course, you know, then they, they go through their cycle and, yeah. and then they contribute to, birth, to, um, to soil fertility. But, yeah. you know, if you think about it, you know, eucalyptus, for instance, you know, yep. our most common genus, you know, we've got several hundred species, and they've developed all sorts of toxins in response to insects. Yeah. And, you know, that keeps them at bay. If they didn't have those toxins, they'd be eaten alive. And, of course, they still get eaten alive. Yeah. But, you know, and the lerps and what have you, and, you know, mm. they certainly develop still. Um, but they basically have a massive amounts of chemical in them mm. to stop the insects chewing them. And, of course, you know, that impacts on our soil fertility because then the leaves fall off. They don't rot very readily in Australia, unlike yeah. in European countries, for instance. And that means that we don't have the layer of litter breaking down like we do in some countries. So why is that particular to Australia? As the trees in the UK, yeah. like oak trees and beech trees, no. they they have leaves that decompose. They don't have so many yeah. you know, waxy yeah, chemicals. Is, is it an insect difference? It's an interesting question. I mean, don't forget that our trees tend to not to go through winter cycles of dropping their leaves. Mm. So, you know, because they're evergreens, really, they're around all the time. So they have to sustain this insect attack all the time. And, of course, in the UK, you know, you go through these very cold winter cycles, or you're used to anyway, and that means that's, um, in many ways, in the wintertime, the insects die because they're not very good at withstanding cold temperatures. And, mm. of course, the trees have adapted to those insects probably by dumping their leaves. Oh. So you're shedding your load each season. And of course the insects, yeah. So in, so in that sense, you don't need those toxins because you can shed your load and get rid of your insects that way. Oh. Now, some, some eucalypts do it as well, but they shed their bark. So some people argue that bark shedding is in part a response to insect attack. So wow. I was reading your blog today and you talked about harnessing landscape changes to control pests. Yeah, yeah. So how do you do that? What, what? So... So there's good, there's good bugs and there's bad bugs, good insects yep. and bad insects. And um, one of the things that's certainly sustainable agriculture has been promoting for many years now is using the good bugs to control the bad bugs. Mm. So, for instance, you know, we think about caterpillars as being a bad bug. Well, there are lots of insects that attack caterpillars. You know, there are little wasps called parasitoids and they lay their eggs inside the caterpillars and, of course, that kills the caterpillars. 
Um, there are also other wasps that are really tiny, some of the smallest animals we know that lay their eggs inside the eggs of a butterfly egg. Oh, like wow. the midwitch cookies. And, <laughs> and you get this absolute miniature wasp that pops out, and that's a very effective control um, animal for caterpillars. Once you, you, know, you, can, you can buy those things commercially, you can actually order those things online and get the little packets sent to you mm. of the little wasps that help control your caterpillars. So that's one example. And there are a whole of um, other insects that charge around the place and actually catch um, our bugs, that are bad bugs that are eating plants. Mm. So there are hoverflies that effectively, you know, just catch bugs in midair. There's lace wings. You might have heard of lace wings. Yep. Yep. And lace wings, of course, eat aphids and all sorts of other things. That's yeah. what I need. Yeah. Lace yeah. wings. <laughs> well, and, and one of my yeah. favourites, and we have always mm. encouraged this in the garden. I remember showing this to my son a few years ago. Is the the larvae phase of a ladybird. Yeah. So if you think of that yeah. beautiful little red shiny body of the ladybird, and you'd happily put that on the front of a kid's book, mm. but if you had a look at their larvae, it's kind of like it's this mutant, <laughs> like this ugly thing out of Terminator, like this uh, horrendous looking thing. It's frightening. Like if you're an aphid, yeah. you probably actually die from a heart attack when you see it. <laughs> you know, but that yeah. that fascinates me that because yeah. it, it does it was one of the things that, and we'll, we'll go to a break in a minute. But one of the reasons we've got you in, Gary is that uh, last year some pretty alarming articles started to spring up yeah, towards yeah, the tail yeah. end of the year yeah, about sure. the decline of flying insects. Yeah. Can I just um, ask one follow-up question from Jed? Yes. When you talked about adapting the landscape, so do you mean you're des- redesigning the landscape and introducing things that attract the good stuff? Yeah, so it turns out that what you can do is you can change your landscape so that you can keep the good bugs in there and get rid of the bad bugs. Mm. So let me give you a simple example. So we did some work a few years ago around vineyards and it turned out that if you had native vegetation around your vineyards with a lot of undergrowth, with a lot of flowering undergrowth, then you would promote the wasps that help control the caterpillars. Yeah, okay. And what happens is that those wasps also need a sugar source mm. to um, feed and, of course, the flowers provide the sugar source and they also need some protection and the plants underneath the shelter belts can provide a protection. Awesome. And then they simply go out in the vineyard and they go and um, attack the bad bugs. Awesome. can be very effective. So this is what we call, I think, more like the organic mind and that's our former um, guest Charles Massey talked about that difference um, one of the things we're sadly going to talk to about Ari about after the break is the more mechanical and industrial mind of the last hundred years or so which we, we suspect is probably a contributor to this decline in flying bugs You are listening to a Triple R podcast podcast etc <laughs> we were discussing just the long history of bugs and we touched a little bit towards the end of that on how you might um, use m- landscape management to introduce beneficial bugs to farmlands and so on. Well, one of the reasons we're discussing that at all is because we've we've had a war on bugs, haven't we, the last 100 or so years? No, we certainly have, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. So late last year, uh, a, a bunch of articles popped up. I'll just open one here. It was uh, It's pretty horrific, actually. It was This was on The Guardian with the headline, Warning of Ecological Armageddon After Dramatic Plunge in Insect Numbers. And the thrust of this article was that three-quarters of the flying insects in nature reserves across Germany have vanished in 25 years. With, and it says with serious implications for all life on Earth, according to science. So what's happening? Because we didn't always think of bugs as icky and yucky and creepy crawly. I mean, I, I was looking this up today, Ari, and, yeah, and, yeah. and I mentioned to you before the show, we've got scarab beetles in ancient Egypt. We've yeah. got various cultures around the world who, who love bees. You know, we've got um, 
all these different things in in our in our human mythology that are re- quite reverential for insects. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the line, you've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the Christian Bible, and the pestilence and the plagues and the locusts, and and everything starts to go to hell. But and, and again, I said before, it seems to be some really shitty PR from a small group of bugs that ruin it for the rest. But uh, here we are, uh, 2018, looking at these just incredibly awful drops in numbers. Yeah, look, it's real concern, Bushy. I mean, if that's, you know, we don't know if that's the case in Australia yet, obviously, because we haven't got the data like the Germans have. But, I mean, if that's the case and they're losing three quarters of them, that's a huge loss. Mm. And, of course, that means that your essential food for birds is going down, your essential ability to control pests with these good bugs is going down. Mm. There's a whole lot of consequences for that. And soil fertility, of course, you know, pollination. Gosh, on it goes. Yeah. Go on. I was just going to say, I was very excited to hear about them banning uh, these uh, neonicotinoids. Thank you. Yeah, so that's yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a a second. And what 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 has happened in the last two days in the EU with the banning of neonicotinoids? Look, this is this has been an ongoing debate for many years. Mm. Um, you know, neonics, as we call them in the trade. Yeah, yeah. In the business, (laughs) to avoid that horrible word. (laughs) Yeah. You know, neonics have been around for a while and they are, in a sense, quite a good chemical because they use them for seed treatments. Um, I mean, the grains industry in Australia, for instance, is very dependent upon them. And, of course, that effectively means that you don't have to spray them on land, which, of course, means that the damage you do can be less because they're coated around the seeds. They then protect the plant against insects that chew them or mites that chew them as well. And um, that means that there's sort of a soft option, if you like, in that sense. But it turns out that they potentially can have these nasty consequences. They can build up in the environments mm. and it seems like they have the potential to have quite harmful effects on bees in particular. So the purpose is, though, to stop the the uh, insects eating the the crops or whatever? Yeah. And and they do that by... Um, um, yeah, what, how do they work? Killing well, insects? Or, they they yeah, kill insects, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. I mean, effectively, you know, they're, they're um, what's called a systemic, so they are present in the plants, the insects eat the plants, and they get a belly full of poison and they die. And, and so the problem is that they then, I guess, wash with rain or whatever into the soil and then they don't... And they hang around disappear. the... That's correct, they hang around the environment. You know, it's mm. like the old DET story, right? You know, that was obviously around many, many years ago. Yeah, and of course what's the event- old DET story? Okay, the um, the old DDT story was that it was um, well when it first appeared, DDT was treated as well, I guess, a, a panacea. You know, a fantastic way of getting rid of mosquitoes, a fantastic way of controlling pests in agriculture. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the big things for DDT was, I mean, I think it was World War One or two. DDT was going to um, be able to deal with malaria and typhoid yes. and other yes. transmissible diseases yes. that mosquitoes carried. That's absolutely correct. But yeah. it, was, it was much wider, wider than that. Yeah. And, of course, you got to the stage where there were trucks driving around the streets, spraying DDT everywhere, coating it absolutely everywhere. And, mm. um, and that, of course, eventually led to a situation where there was so much DDT going around that it was accumulating in the environment. It wasn't breaking down. You know, it's one of those that doesn't break down particularly fast. And then, of course, it was accumulating up the food chain. And then, of course, you had a situation where the bird eggs were starting to thin as a consequence of the EC. And that then led to a decline in bird populations. Mm. 
So these chemicals can hang around. Some don't, some do, um, and then they can be a problem when they accumulate. So you've got to be careful, you know. I mean, they can be very useful, but you have to be very, very careful. About and you don't find out for so long. Is it ever a good idea to use these chemicals? It always seems like we're discovering. Oops, was a good idea, wasn't it? A great idea once, didn't it? I think, think to be fair, we're better at testing their safety than we used to be. You know, Mm. I mean, the number of tests you have to do these days is much, much more rigorous. Um, But you know, it still is the case that there's an awful lot of these chemicals going out, and Mm. we should obviously try and cut down as much as possible. Um, And of course, that also means that the chemicals that are useful can be around for longer. You know, it's a bit like plastics. I mean, plastics are fantastic. It's the overuse of the plastic that's the problem. That's right. And the chemicals are exactly the same. Um, if you overuse them, then they can be a problem. And, of course, the insects are also very good at evolving resistance to these chemicals. Well, so that's another issue. I'm real, one mm. of the things I knew, I mean, I remember hearing this story years ago, probably as a kid, is that one of the things that uh, brought DDT to a halt was the fact that one of those, you spoke about the thinning of bird shells yep. as you went up the trophic ladder in the predatory level so when you get to that apex predator that are you know the creatures that are eating smaller birds bugs insects and all the way down one of the birds that became threatened in the united states was the bald eagle that's right so this is where the pr thing comes up again (laughs) so now now if any other species of bird in the u.s was under threat no one would have given two hoots but here it is that was their symbol that's the freedom and the great american way and this thing's in trouble and DDT, I think it was 1972 or something, not early 1970s, it was eventually banned. But this, but this is the other thing that was funny. It, it came, it, its program was was trying to be utilised to get rid of typhus and um, and malaria and so forth, as you say, by spraying it in the streets. Mm. But it was only of any great effect in high socioeconomic areas, um, and but at a much greater rate to the broader ecology. So. They were kind of eradicating malaria and typhoid and so forth in areas which were the least affected by <laughs> malaria and typhoid. Yeah, they can afford it, I guess. Mm. Mm. So, so they were spraying this in urban areas, like down the street. Very much yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What? It was a big thing. Um, but there was a fellow at the time, his name's Dr. Bradbury Robinson. He's a physician, nutritionist, and he was a former president of a Michigan conservation club. And he was quoted as saying, perhaps the greatest danger from DDT is that its extensive use in farm areas is most likely to upset the natural balances, not only killing beneficial insects in great number, but by bringing about the death of fish, birds, and other forms of wildlife, either by their feeding on insects, killed by DDT, or directly by ingesting the poison. That's 1947. That's about 30, yeah. nearly 35 years before its eventual banning. I want to know, though, is, I mean, is the DDT still hanging around in places? I mean... Yeah, so you can still find DDT in some places. In fact, you know, DDT is still being used. Actually. Right. Yeah, very low levels. Certain countries have not actually banned it. right And, of course, there are other chemicals that are related to DDT that can hang around the environment long, for a long period. I mean, we have dildren in this country, which, of yep. course, was used to um, control sheep blowfly, mm-hmm. amongst other things, and that certainly hangs around the environment for a long time. What does it stand for, DDT? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you can Google it. <laughs> You'll have to Google that one. I've forgotten something it. I used to know. Rather something or other. Yeah. Tetroid or something. Yeah. Right, I used to know, we... but I've forgotten that one, I'm afraid. Keep chatting <laughs> while I open it up. Um, <laughs> it is di... Oh, hang on. Yeah. Jesus, that's a Scrabble score there. Dichlorodiphenyltrichto... Someone else will finish that for me. <laughs> if you got that word in Scrabble, though, you'd be killing it. Um Back to the original point. So this is this DDT, um, nicotinoids that we talked about, a, a bunch of these things seem to be what let's call it some of the background sure. noise that's yep. probably contributing to the decimated numbers of insects. Um, 
is there any hypothesis that it's not just that? I mean, we've got obviously we've got deforestation and yes. things like that. Yes, climate change issues. Yeah. Um, that's a grab bag of catastrophe right there. <laughs> how like do you start to look at these things? I mean, what? How do you start to find the source of these problems? Yeah, and that's a big question, <laughs> mm. and there are no easy answers. I mean, some insects are very good at boom-bust cycles, um, yep. and mosquitoes are certainly one of those. So basically you get a heavy rainfall, you get flooding, inevitably you get a call from someone saying, I've got a lot of mosquitoes around, right? So basically mosquitoes are good at using water bodies around for a while. And every time you get flooding, every time you get a big rain event, that's what happens as long as it's warm at the same time. Um, so those mosquitoes, of course, a female produces several hundred eggs. They can take fantastic advantage of these, and you can build a population from nothing to large very, very quickly. Mm. Now, there are other bugs that don't build up very quickly. They take a while. They have a longer lifespan. Um, I think the other day there was a, a bug that was recorded as living for, you know, 30 or 40 years, so they can live a long time. And, of mm. course, things like cicadas have very slow life cycles, right? They can, mm. you know, they're in the soil for many, many years before they come out. They don't build up as quickly. So in some ways it depends on the bug you're talking about. You know, the slow builders will, of course, um, not come back quickly, but the other ones can be exploited. Yeah. So it can exploit the conditions very effectively. And... To take a couple of your points, one, they're not um, necessarily sexy like bald eagles or, mm. you know. Oh, what, about butterf- what about butterflies? Yeah. But, well, maybe <laughs> butterflies, yeah. And bees seem, you know, quite popular. There's quite mm. a few of us that like bees. I think but, bees uh, get a lot of hashtagging on, on Instagram. People like yeah. the bees they're and the fluffy. butterflies. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, it's yeah. not like campaigns to, you know, save the whales or the dolphins. Mm. Yeah. Most people yeah. would go, insects, ick. And, and quite a few of them, as, as you said before, give each other a bad rep because they yeah they do make people sick or they bite you or they well whatever. no yeah I mean no <laughs> bees don't pass on the Zika virus or anything like that I mean <laughs> it's this horrific curse. So what, my point is, I guess it's hard to to get people involved and um, passionate about the decline of some insects who might be quite important in the food chain. Yeah, look, I'm not sure about that. I mean, think about the Lord Howe Island stick insect, right? Mm. I mean, it's become one of the pin-up insects of the zoo, you know. <laughs> and tell yeah. us about that a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was an insect that, um, of course, is on an island, so it's obviously threatened. And then, of course, um, it got to a situation where it wasn't found on the main line anymore and then it was rediscovered on some rocky outcrop and then it was rescued from the outcrop and brought into the um, captured breeding program in the Melbourne Zoo. Wow. So, and now we have quite a lot of them. So it's mm. obviously quite successful. So that was brought back, and it's a beautiful insect. You know, you, it doesn't bite, it doesn't transmit <laughs> disease. <laughs> so I think, yeah, people can get excited about insects, but it is partly an education. It is partly a yucky factor. But I think mm-hmm. once they get over that, they can see they're amazingly diverse and amazingly exciting. And, of course, what we need to do is have more insects as pets, and then people will really mm. get excited. Ooh, I had stick insects as pets, and they were really <laughs> creepy. <laughs> I couldn't bond with them and I put them in the hedge in my oh, garden and yeah. just let, set them free. You need a Lord Howe Island stick insect. They're quite, quite, quite large, big. Yeah, you know? Oh, no. <laughs> They're like your little stick insects on steroids. I could have little, like, beetles. I wouldn't mind beetles. I've got mites at the moment as pets. Don't want them, but they're, they seem to like my house. <laughs> just touching on the beetle thing, I mean, we were just saying, you were saying that one of the key roles in ecology for insects, or one of the many roles, is that they provide food for... Other animals, birds Absolutely. especially. Yep. Yep. Um, but then I'm thinking one of the other things that they deliver is waste. Yes. Waste. Mm. I mean, they, they deal with poo. They deal with dropped food. They deal with all these sorts of things. All sorts of things like that, yeah. So, um, I mean, is this, one of the, is this one of the things that's showing up in the study and, and in Germany where it's especially showing up? Are they noticing, 
you know, like his cow shit in the paddock not breaking down. I mean, are the the bird numbers dropping because there's less insects? Are all of these sorts of things noticeable in these studies? Look, I I don't think we can quite say that. But, but of course, you know, when you talk about cow shit, we have a classic example in Australia, which, of course, is the dung beetle. Yeah. You know, the dung beetle was something that we didn't have. Um, We then, of course, had a lot of cows running around and, of course, the dung wasn't breaking down. Mm. So we then imported dung beetles, quite a few different species, from other parts of the world and they became very, very effective in terms of breaking down our dung. So instead of having cow pats everywhere that weren't breaking down and weren't contributing to soil nutrition, Mm. um, we eventually got to the stage where they could be quite effective. Has has that generally been positive? I mean, there's always that unintended consequence of risk of this. These insects are pretty specific on what they do and yeah. um, you know that's certainly been a success story and in fact you know farmers love them and farmers used to go around and they used to transport them from one paddock to the next paddock just so they can oh. break down their dung so yeah. what a wonderful relationship that is fascinating <laughs> and you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. We've had a bit of a chat tonight. We've talked about the long evolutionary history of insects. We've also discussed a 20th century war on bugs with neonicotinoids and DDT featuring a bit there and and discussed that. But uh, it kept popping up throughout the show. We kept talking about some of the more positive things that we can do with introduction of beneficial bugs into the landscape and and how we might move forward in the future getting away from agricultural chemicals and so forth. Um, So... Obviously, out on the farm, one of the things that's changed a lot is, you know, the disappearance of hedgerows and, and non-farm habitat. I mean, is that, a, is that a thing that's starting to pop up a lot with farms you're working on? You've mentioned before a vineyard. Yeah, look, I mean, the hedgerow is a, is a European phenomenon, right? Um, and certainly uh, it's been researched very intensively and there are fantastic bugs that hide in hedgerows. That's been well established. Mm. In Australia, we have much less information. Um, and, of course, the problem in Australia is, is we have very large paddock sizes. Massive. So vineyards are an exception. Um, but certainly when you look at um, landscapes that produce um, livestock, uh, that are used for livestock and landscapes that produce um, crops, grain crops, then they are massive in size. Now, yeah. you know, that's not to say that you can't do things to actually promote bugs. Mm. Do trees add as much um, benefit to the landscape as, as a variety of different types of shrubs and lower-lying things for insects? Yeah, look, that's, that's a good question. And, you know, I don't think we're quite on top of that yet. Um, but we certainly know that when you have a good undergrowth present, you get a lot more bugs mm. than when you only have trees. And, of course, that's a problem because in Australian, you know, farming landscapes, you often have these isolated trees. Mm. And if you had, you know, if you had things growing underneath them, they'd probably be a lot better in terms of containing bugs. And do the things underneath them all, does it all need to be connected like a corridor? Or can you have islands of habitat? You can have islands of habitat, yeah. It doesn't have to be connected because, of course, you know, many bugs fly. Because so. they fly. Yeah. You know, Not lace just wing, wandering about. Yeah, and lacewings are incredibly good flyers and they certainly are very effective at um, being predators. So. Mm. so might the key be to, um, to try to ramp up efforts more in the suburbs, the metropolitan areas, mm. the rural fringe in order to, you know, get these insect numbers bouncing back. I mean, again, you were saying we're not sure what the numbers are like in Australia, but mm. perhaps in Germany and other parts of the world that are seeing this decline, obviously yeah. they, there's going to have to be a drawdown and, and reduction in um, pesticides and chemical use. But, I mean, to what degree can the home gardener begin to contribute some assistance to this? <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, rolling his eyes, <laughs> defeated. Look, I, yeah, I, I used to have this concept in mind of having a messy landscape. 
Yeah. And you know how some people, you go, you stroll down the street and you can counter a front garden and it's messy, you know. Yes. It's got lots of oh, na- yeah. native plants in it. Yeah. yeah. And they're fantastic, you know, because they will keep a lot more bugs going mm. than a nice, neat landscape. Yeah. And if we sort of started appreciating messiness, then I suspect we could probably get a lot more bugs happening in our urban environment. Well, there's yeah. a big move towards that in the UK, like not yeah. mowing the nature strips yeah. and planting meadows. And my husband's job in the UK was to go and try and mm. talk to farmers and landowners and encourage them to have habitat corridors and hedgerows and yeah but that job doesn't exist here but maybe it will in the future well you never know um and, and certainly you know the other thing we probably needed some data some good data yeah so, so maybe you know where people do have messy gardens they find that they can grow veggies without putting much on in terms of sprays and what have you so. indeed well it's also another thing i'll keep banging on about pr tonight but it's, it's, it's the public perception thing you know that some of the most successful creatures on the planet right now are the creatures that we raise for food the cow the chicken i mean you can imagine that if we weren't eating chicken on the scale or the jungle fowl there's something like i can't remember how many billion of them are at any given time had humans not taken them up as a food source you can imagine that they would be heavily pressed towards extinction in the disappearing jungles of borneo and malaysia but they're not they're thriving um there's a lot of talk at the moment about insect protein as a food source um Perhaps is that is this maybe one of the ways that we turn public opinion in favour of insects and start to, you know, for want of a better word, like cherish them more or desire their presence a bit more? Is that feasible? Look, it's it's certainly a possibility. Um, it certainly has enormous potential that we don't currently tap into. Um, mm. I think from memory, around thirty percent of cultures around the world still eat insects. Yeah, right. So you know, it's not like it's it's died, um, but it certainly has reduced in recent years as a consequence of a Western diet. Mm. I mean, the thing about insects is you can actually grow them in very small areas. And, and in some ways, they're pre-adapted to urban conditions because all you need is a warehouse. I mean, you do need some know-how as well. But you can culture, for instance, crickets and beetles and all sorts of things in very large numbers and yeah. very, very confined spaces. Can you do that at home? I mean, if you want to raise these things yeah. in your shed? Look, you might be able to, um, yeah. but, you know, there's certainly expertise that's required and you can certainly get diseases and other things popping into so insects and destroying your culture. So you've got to be a bit careful. But once you know what you're doing... Yeah. If they're that easy to grow, could we just recolonise <laughs> from the city, you know, have, like, farms and set them free? Well, and, and you know, there are, there are urban farms that are growing crickets, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a couple in Melbourne, I understand, um, and certainly in the US they're starting to pop up. Mm. So uh, what would they be supplying, fishermen or something, mostly? Yeah, look, in, in, in the US you can buy insect protein for human consumption, mm. um, yeah. but certainly in Australia, and mostly in the US as well, of course, it is to supply um, fish food and what have you. Because so, mm. yeah. so, the, the, big, the big grab uh, for insect protein is that the conversion rate is much yes. more efficient. So can you quickly tell us a bit about why that is? Yes, I mean, I mean, beef cattle are probably the worst um, because they have a very low conversion rate and they need a massive amount of water because you've got to, of course, you know, graze your grass and what have you. Um, and you need a lot of space to hold beef cattle. So yeah. that's pretty inefficient. Chickens are not too bad. I mean, chickens are pretty good at converting. Yeah. Um, and insects are probably just a, a bit better than chickens with respect to conversion rates. Um, per weight of protein. Per, per weight of protein, that's right, yeah. yeah. So in terms of intake and output, in terms of protein, they're probably about as good as chickens, probably a little bit better. But they don't need any water or very little water, and that's the yeah, big right. advantage. 
And I guess that input, you were talking before we went to where you were talking a little bit about, you know, food waste and things like that that you can supply to raise these insects. So, I mean, you've possibly got a double-edged sword there where you're providing protein for human consumption or other consumption at the same time dealing with a, a large-scale food waste issue. Is that feasible? I mean, Well, it's, I mean, there's certainly a lot of waste you can throw into, um, into insect cultures and they'll do quite well on that. So there's certainly that potential. I mean, you'd again have to be careful because, of course, you know, food waste can breed disease even if you don't process it quickly enough. Yeah. Um, but if you had that under control, um, then certainly that's that has enormous potential. Cool. So it's not just a matter of having like a, a pile of crap out the back and let the bugs eat it and then you eat the bugs. I mean, you could, are you still going to potentially get, you know, say salmonella or various pathogens yes. pass through? You've still got that potential. Yeah. yeah. You've still got that potential. I mean, it's a bit like compost, you know. I mean, you don't, you've got to treat your compost properly before, yeah. it, um, before you can actually use them throughout the soil. Yeah. yeah. Before it's good. Yeah. Fascinating. It is. Insects. We could t- talk for many, many hours. <laughs> I, I was just reminded of that uh, mm. TV show, you know, The World's Worst Jobs, yeah. and he was at a, uh, <laughs> a cricket production place. Yeah, right. What's that, Mike such and such? Yeah, yeah. Mike, whoever. And uh, at uh. one stage he was trying to pack these crickets and they're just crawling all over him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could imagine, like, trying to change an infant's nappy, probably. Well, you can always come into my lab and feed some mosquitoes if you like. And that, might be a, that might be a subscriber giveaway. Is that your pets? <laughs> do you have pet mosquitoes? <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of mosquito cultures. And we do feed them by putting our arms in, yes. Oh, oh wow. Oh. Okay, I'm going to come and visit. That sounds cool. <laughs> a massive thanks to our guest, Ari Hoffman. Thank you for... I mean, we could keep yakking for hours and hours about the insect world. It's intense. But um, you've got a blog that people can look at? Yeah, look, we do. It's, it's um, called PAG. It actually stands for Pests and Environmental Adaptation Research Group. So it's a horrible name in that sense. <laughs> but, just, but just look up a pair with a G on the end. And yep. I'm on the University of Melbourne. That's where our blog is. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.